once long, long ago in the time before time, in the kingdom of Rajagaha, the Bodhisatta took birth as an elephant into the royal herd. This was no ordinary animal, for even when still quite young, the, the little elephant's skin had a rich dark color like polished rosewood, and their eyes glittered like finely cut diamonds, manifesting the five kinds of brightness. The little elephant's mouth and tongue were a deep scarlet color like cloth woven from the very finest Benares silk. Their trunk shone like silver flecked with red gold. Their feet glowed from within like the finest lacquerware from the temples of Bagan. And in this way, the little elephant was adorned with the ten marks that characterize one who will become a Buddha, a Bodhisatta. Now the royal Mahut in the kingdom of Rajagaha, the elephant trainer, couldn't help but notice that this was a special animal. And so he assigned his son the task of taming and training the, the elephant. His son's name was Mitra, and he loved the little elephant. And the, the two soon became inseparable friends. And Mitra named the elephant Devapriya, which means beloved of the devas. And he cared for them with every kindness, fed Devapriya by hand, took them to the river daily to bathe. And most afternoons, the two of them could be seen playing together on the sand, on the sandy banks of the river, roaming the fields outside the town. And Mitra's name suited him well because the word Mitra means friend, but not just any friend. It means a friend who protects you from harm and guides you to the right path and brings you to happiness. Now elephants, as many of you I'm sure know, grow fairly quickly. And it was soon the case that Devapriya was large enough that Mitra could uh, climb up onto their back and and ride. And the two were often then seen uh, roaming around together, Mitra riding on Devapriya's back, or sometimes practicing tricks on the on the banks of the river after bath time. And sometimes for fun, Mitra would uh, ask Devapriya to try balancing on three legs. And that was easy enough. A tripod is quite stable. And uh, when this was mastered, the half-grown elephant tried balancing just on the hind legs, holding their front legs up, and sometimes balancing only on the front legs. And every once in a while, even practiced balancing on one leg. And Deva Priya's movements were always smooth and graceful. And even as they grow, grew into adulthood and attained a massive size, with great ears like huge fans and magnificent tusks, they still remain graceful and smooth in their movements. And stories of Devapriya's beauty and talent spread around the city, and people would come from all around the area to see them, to see the two of them uh, together and watch them play and practice tricks. 
And so eventually the king of Rajagaha heard about this elephant and all these people who were praising the elephant's beauty. And, and so he commanded that they would come to the royal court and present themselves. And so they did that. And the king was quite taken with Devapriya's size and beauty and declared, this shall be the state elephant. And Devapriya was given a special uh, paddock and uh, place to stay on the palace grounds and was given only the finest of foods and was given this, accorded this special status. And then on one festival day, the king commanded that the city should be adorned with flowers and garlands and made to look like a city of the devas. And he instructed Mitra to dress Devapriya in the finest trappings, adorn them with flowers and a saddle made of finely tooled leather and uh, trappings, hangings of fine silk, colors of crimson and gold and emerald green. And Mitra spoke gently to Devapriya and said that the king would be riding upon their back in a procession through the city and that this was a great honor for both of them. And so the king, attended by a retinue of the court nobles, rode all through the city and people gathered all along the route and moved by the sight of the magnificent elephant, they began to exclaim, oh, what beauty, oh, what grace, what a stately gait, such fine proportions, such grace, hail Devapriya, finest of beasts, an elephant worthy of a universal monarch. Now the king heard all this praise being heaped upon Devapriya and he became jealous because he thought he should be the one receiving all of this adulation and praise. And so he decided he would get his revenge. So he summoned Mitra and he said, do you call that a well-trained elephant? Mitra said, yes, sire. Devapriya is very well-trained. No, growled the king. That elephant is badly trained, hardly trained at all. And Mitra said, no, sire. Devapriya is very, very well-trained. And the king said, well, then, if that elephant is so well-trained, can you get them to climb up to the top of Mount Velpula outside the city walls? Yes, said Devapriya, said Mitra. Such a climb is nothing to an elephant of Devapriya's caliber and training. Away with you then, said the king. And so he got down, having been riding on the elephant's back, and told Mitra to mount and, and go and climb up the mountain. And, and the king and his, his retinue went to the, there to wait, and Devapriya came and easily climbed up to the top. The king followed after, and he had the great elephant halt at the edge of a cliff. And he said, now, if you say this beast is so well-trained, have them stand on three legs. This was easy. And so Mitra, sitting high on Devapriya's back, spoke softly and said, High then, my beauty, O thou finest of friends, stand thou upon three legs. So Mitra took the pose on three legs. And it was as if a mighty boulder had come to life and taken on the abilities of a trained dancer. So much grace was there. 
And the king said, well, let's see them stand on the two front legs. And the great being gently shifted their weight onto their front legs, stood balanced on just the front two forelegs, towered above the assembled crowd like a mighty tree rooted into the earth. Now just on the hind legs, roared the king. And again, Mitra spoke gently to Devapriya and the mighty elephant shifted their weight onto the hind legs. And just as a Qigong master would settle into the tree pose, the mighty elephant stood strong and firm, but relaxed and supple like a reed. Well then, said the king, have them stand on one leg. The mighty being shifted their massive weight just to one foreleg and balanced without even a twitch of tail or trunk. Incensed that the elephant didn't fall over the cliff, the king cried out, now if you can make them stand in the air. At this, Mitra thought, in all of India, there is no elephant as royal or as well-trained as this one. Surely the king is jealous and hopes to make us tumble over the cliff and fall to our death. So he whispered softly in the elephant's ear and said, My dear friend, O thou finest of elephants, the king wants you to fall over this cliff and get killed. Such a king is not worthy of you. By the power and purity of our friendship and love and by the merit of all your wholesome past actions, rise up with me upon your back and led us away through the air to Benares. And so the great being, their heart purified by the depth of their love for Mitra, endowed with marvelous powers that arise from great merit, rose up into the air and hovered above the king and all his retinue, floated there like a great dark cloud outlined in gold. Mitra spoke and said, Sire, this elephant pure of heart and possessed with the great powers that flow forth from merit is too good for a worthless fool like you. Truly none but a wise and good king is worthy to be the master of such a noble beast. When one who is not worthy gets an elephant like this, they don't see or understand the value. Thus they not only lose their elephant, but they lose their reputation and the rest of their glory and splendor as well. And now I bid you goodbye. With this, Devapriya sent forth a mighty trumpeting. (laughs) Rose higher and higher into the air and drifted away to the north. And the two of them floated above fields and towns and last came to Benares. And there they halted in midair above the courtyard of the palace. And there was a great commotion in the city for such a sight was rare at that time of year. Really rare, unusual, any time. And they all ran towards the palace ground and the people cried out, look at the royal elephant who has come through the air and to greet our king and is hovering above the courtyard. And so news was sent to the king and he came out and spoke and said, greetings, friends, be welcome here. Please alight that I may greet you properly. And so Deva Priya descended slowly down out of the air like someone doing, waving hands by the side of the lake. (laughs) Gentle and slow, no hurry. And landed in the courtyard. And Mitra got down and 
paid respects to the king. And uh, the king asked, what's going on? How come you came floating through the air here? (laughs) And so they told the whole story of what had happened in Rajagaha. And the king said, it was very good of you to come. You are both most welcome here and now. Mikasa es sukasa. All things here are yours. And so the king declared a holiday, had the city decorated with flowers and garlands and banners, declared Devapriya to be the royal elephant and had them installed in a special yard there on the palace grounds and brought special fine foods. And then he divided his kingdom into three portions. He gave one portion to Devapriya, one to Mitra, and kept one for himself. And it's said that his power and reputation grew from that day on until all of India fell under his rule and he became emperor. And they say that as a ruler, he was charitable, wise, and kind, and all beings flourished under his care. The end. (laughs) So there are a few different possible teaching threads in a story like this one. You know, the downside of excessive pride and jealousy or the the suffering that comes from becoming overly identified with one's uh, perceived role or status as the the first king was. But, But the power of love and friendship really are at the heart of the story. And in this case, those qualities had great power indeed, allowing Devapriya to float through the air, among other things. I'm using this story tonight, partly because I like telling stories, but there's an important consideration for all of us when we look at our, you could say, the attitude that we approach this practice with. What we bring to it in terms of often unseen underlying attitudes. Maybe it's especially important to look at this when we come on a retreat, but really also in the broadest possible sense. Because often we come to meditation with an attitude where we wind up seeing ourselves as a confused person with a lot of problems. You know, confusion we have to try to to pick through and pull apart and understand and problems we have to work on and fix before we're okay, before we can become whole. And of course, we wouldn't come to a retreat like this if we didn't feel a possibility and a movement towards transformation of some kind. We're interested in that, and that's true. But we have to be very careful how we hold that. And then we judge the experience we have in meditation, judge ourselves based on our perception of what what it is that has happened. And we take it really personally so much of the time, and often we use it as evidence of corroborating our theory that there's something flawed in us or something wrong. And maybe we've been telling ourselves stories for years 
that reinforce a view that there's something missing or wrong with us. Or maybe others told us stories, maybe since we were very young, and we've taken those on and made them our own until they're so woven into the fabric of our perception that we don't even see them anymore. Stories that are limiting or reinforce feelings of unworthiness. These are some words from a a teacher and and I believe also a therapist named uh, Bob Sharples. Don't meditate to fix yourself, to heal yourself, to improve yourself or to redeem yourself. Rather do it as an act of love, of deep warm friendship to yourself. In this way, there is no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement, for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless round of trying so hard that wraps so many people's lives in a knot. Instead, see meditation as an act of love. I don't know that we think of self-improvement as a subtle aggression. But when we approach our practice as a self-improvement project in order to fix or even to heal ourselves, it reinforces much of the time an attitude that there's something wrong with us. There's nothing wrong with anyone in this room. And this is a particularly subtle and I think insidious kind of self-cruelty because it disguises itself as the truth. Maybe even as something wholesome. The, The Zen master, founder of the San Francisco Zen Center, much beloved teacher Suzuki Roshi once said to his students, you're all perfect just as you are and you could use a little work. So we're all perfect just as we are. But sure, we see things that are troubling and ways that we struggle and suffer in our lives. And that's real, but that doesn't mean there's something wrong with us. And it isn't that healing doesn't occur. It can and it does. And the Buddha has been described as the greatest of all physicians. And the Dhamma has been likened to the best of all medicines. And there's some reality to that. And it may be fitting and appropriate in a way to see our practice as a kind of healing. A healing in the deepest possible sense of what that might mean. But to approach our practice as though we are somehow flawed or wrong or unworthy is at the very best a subtle aggression and it can be a kind of violence towards ourselves. The other, was it just last night? Tara gave a talk last night. Someone, one of you, you did, shared a poem by our friend, uh, my friend at least, Maddie Weingast, uh, put together. Um, It's for sale, I noticed, in the 
in the <coughs> in the place where there are books. Um, he wrote a beautiful um, collection of poems that are interpretations based on these poems of the early nuns, as Tara was saying, uh, poems from what's called the Terigatta, verses of the female elders, the nuns at the time of the Buddha. And this is one from uh, a nun named um, Dantika. And uh, it actually, it ties in really well to my elephant story because it takes place in that same area near Rajagaha. While walking along the river after a long day meditating on Vulture Peak, I watched an elephant splashing its way out of the water and up the bank. Hello, my friend, a man waiting there said, scratching the elephant behind its ear. Did you have a good bath? The elephant stretched out its leg, the man climbed up, and the two rode off like that together. Seeing what once had been so wild, now a friend and companion to this good man, I took a seat under the nearest tree and reached out a gentle hand to my own mind. Truly, I thought, this is why I came to the woods. I love this image and and the possibility it points to that we might reach out a gentle hand to our own mind, our own heart. That's not often not our approach. These are some words from uh, Sharon Salzberg, who I've quoted before. In some ways, our greatest ally in this practice is our wish to be happy. This wish functions as a homing instinct for freedom when we can unite it with understanding what actually brings happiness. Sometimes we feel we do not really deserve happiness. We may even feel ashamed of wanting it. Yet this wish is one of the finest things about us, opening the door to transcending our limited lives. Can you touch into some aspect of your own wish for happiness right now? And can you feel that as one of the finest things about you? Can you see how this might be one of the keys, this movement of heart, one of the keys that opens the door to transcendent understanding, liberating knowledge, one of the keys that opens the door to freedom? A few more words from Sharon. When we feel love, our mind is expansive and open enough to include the entirety of life in full awareness, both its pleasures and its pains. We feel neither betrayed by pain nor overcome by it, and thus we can contact that which is undamaged within us, regardless of the situation. Metta sees truly that our integrity is inviolate, no matter what our life situation may be. This is a profound possibility for us 
that we might connect with, contact that inner integrity, that within each of us that is undamaged, that is inviolate, that is always has been unbroken, always has been whole and complete. The part inside us, deep in that, that has the very essence of this is love and connection. And when we start to connect with this part of us, part of ourselves, it leads us to qualities of love and trust and confidence that we may not even have had any sense were possible. Here's another one of Mate's beautiful poems. This nun's name was Mitta. Mitta means friend in Pali. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. This path of friendship, that's a beautiful way to describe this path of practice, the Buddha's path. I often use the image, and I've used it at this retreat, I think, that, that our practice is the process of planting seeds, like the image of planting seeds. Each moment of mindfulness, each moment where we connect with the feeling of metta, we're planting the seed of our future happiness and the future happiness of all beings, planting, planting the seeds of liberation. I think it's a great kind of metaphor or way to illustrate what we're doing here. We can plant those seeds. And we plant them by forming these beautiful intentions, the intention of goodwill, the intention to limit the harm that we do, to pay attention to how we live, the intention to be aware and to connect with our life and to um, explore deeply what it means to be a human. And these intentions in the mind, the heart, that's really what matters. And the potential power of an, of an intention is huge. And just as a single seed, a single acorn has the ability, the power to bring forth a huge tree filled with thousands of more seeds. And when a seed falls in a crack of a great rock, Over time, it can crack that rock into two. And so the power of intention in the mind and the heart is also, it's really great. But we 
as I said, we don't know when the seeds we plant will flower forth. And we can't make them sprout. They have their own time. And it's not necessarily going to be on our timetable. There's a book uh, written by a, a researcher and author named Hope Jaren. The book is called Lab Girl, Research Scientist. In that book, she, when she, this is, these are some words, an excerpt from that book. A seed knows how to wait. Most seeds wait for at least a year before starting to grow. A cherry seed can wait for a hundred years with no problem. What exactly each seed is waiting for is known only to that seed. A seed is alive while it waits. Every acorn on the ground is just as alive as the 300-year-old oak tree that towers over it. After scientists broke open the coat of a lotus seed, Nelumbo nucifera, that's its Latin name, and coddled the embryo into growth, they kept the empty husk. When they radiocarbonated this discarded outer shell, they discovered that their seedling had been waiting for them within a peat bog in China for no less than 2,000 years. This tiny seed had stubbornly kept up its hope, the hope of its own future, while entire human civilizations rose and fell. And then one day this little plant's yearning finally burst forth within a laboratory. I wonder where it is now. Each beginning is the end of a waiting. We are each given exactly one chance to be. Each of us is both impossible and inevitable. Every replete tree was first a seed that waited. Maybe what we're doing here is learning how to wait. Maybe that's what the practice is. And so this possibility, as was suggested in that quote earlier from the Bob Sharples, that we, we, let me see, how did he say it? To make our practice see meditation as an act of love. When we can bring the mind and the heart together through this kind of uh, turning of our intention. There's a beautiful possibility there. It opens the door to so much. A lot of quotations this evening. This is from uh, the teacher J. Krishnamurti. He said, when the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless, not only in its capacity to think and to act efficiently, but also in its sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It is like water that anyone can drink out of any jar 
whether golden or earthenware. It is inexhaustible. Without love, there is not freedom. Without love, freedom is merely an idea which has no value at all. And in my view, the practice of freedom is indeed the practice of love and the practice of love is the practice of freedom. It reminds me of uh, once heard, I don't know if it was in a book, somewhere, there's a, there was a teacher who came here once, a teacher of Joseph's and Sharon's and others who founded this place uh, named Deepama. And she lived in Calcutta in a little apartment <laughs> deep in the heart of Calcutta. And people who went there said to be in her presence was like being bathed in love and light. And someone once asked her if they should practice metta or vipassana, and she said, it does not matter. Now, maybe that answer was specific to that person at that time. I don't know. But in my view, it's if you, they, they wind up at the same place. If you practice metta, you're going to have to look at everything. If you practice vipassana, you're going to have to look at everything. And at a certain point, love is the only thing that makes any sense. And so love and wisdom flow together like currents in the river, strands of a cable that wind around and strengthen one another. Not far from where I live, the, the Colorado and the, and the Green River come together. And the green is really green. <laughs> and the Colorado is brownie red. That's what that means, red. And for a while... You can see the streams side by side, but in a very short time they blend together and you can't see the two as separate. It's like that. They merge and become one. Um, the great Indian saint teacher, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, speaks to this sense of these two weaving together in his own very evocative way. He once said, wisdom tells me I am nothing. Love tells me I am everything. Between the two, my life flows. The wisdom of I am nothing doesn't point to some kind of bleak emptiness or some kind of annihilation or non-existence or disintegration. And that's not in any way the experience of deep realization. The wisdom of I am nothing points to a deep inner release. You could say characterized by clear, unrestricted spaciousness of heart and mind without the separation of self and other. no latching on to any of it in that way of identification and clinging. So if we're nothing in that way, there are no barriers to the expression of love and kindness, care, compassion. They arise 
organically, naturally, fluidly within that space, within that emptiness, that no-thingness. And so being nothing then, we're inevitably, essentially, everything. And we see ultimately that there is no distinction between our own happiness and the happiness of others. It's like those currents running together. They're the same thing. And so this leads, in my view, to one of the most beautiful and powerful expressions of the heart of loving kindness. And that's the the quality of bodhicitta. Bodhi means awakened. Chitta, chitta means mind or mind heart. It's not a distinction made in Pali. And you could say on a interaction, level of interaction, relational level, this quality of bodhicitta manifests as compassion. You could say the heart response in the face of suffering quality of karuna, this resonating with the suffering of beings and the wish to alleviate it. That's the natural response of the awakened heart. When there, especially when there is this freedom from this latching on to concepts of self and other, there's no barriers there, no boundaries. And so if we hold this, so you could say on the ultimate level, this bodhicitta is this empty aware nature of the mind itself. There are no restrictions there. Care, compassion, love, kindness, those are the qualities that just arise there organically. And if we hold this understanding in mind, we can approach our practice with the intentional motivation that we awaken for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And in my view, our practice is never just about us. It's always a gift. The more that we can live our lives with love and wisdom, running the show, driving the bus, that ripples out in ways that we can't even begin to fathom. So if it's a gift, let's make, we can make it intentional. We can, let me practice for the benefit of those who cannot, who lack the capacity, who don't have the opportunity Let me be with this for the benefit of others, this difficult mind state, this joy, this transient joy. Let me be with this for the benefit of all beings. And we can dedicate our practice this way. And we can make something that is a gift, we can make it an intentional gift. Last night, was it last night you were talking about bowing? Or this morning? Uh, answering questions. When I stand here and I do this gesture towards this 
rupa, I bring into my mind the thought, may my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. And I started doing this actually a long time ago, mostly because Joseph Goldstein said he was doing his own version of that and he told me I should do it too. And, you know, when I first started doing that, my my little voice said, yeah, right. Who are you kidding? As if there was anything valuable, anything good that I could offer in that way. But I just kept doing it. And that little voice has quieted down a lot. It's really different. We don't have to be perfect. That's not a requirement to make that offering. May my practice be for the benefit of others. So I want to uh, close with some words from Shantideva from uh, the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. And raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely within their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus and all my goods beside and all my merits gained and all that are still to be gained. I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures, for boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. And thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. We can have a a moment or two of quiet. Let these words drift away. a couple of minutes so I'm going to leave you with one of my very most favorite poems that captures some essential quality of metta for me this is the initiation song from the finder's lodge by Ursula K. Le Guin please bring strange things please come bringing new things 
Let very old things come into your hands. Let what you do not know come into your eyes. Let desert sand harden your feet. Let the arch of your feet be the mountains. Let the paths of your fingertips be your maps. And the ways you go be the lines on your palms. Let there be deep snow in your in-breathing and your out-breath be the shining of ice. May your mouth contain the shapes of strange words. May you smell food cooking you have not eaten. May the spring of a foreign river be your navel. May your soul be at home where there are no houses. Walk carefully, well-loved one. Walk fearlessly, well-loved one. Return with us, return to us. Be always coming home. And this is my wish for you now and always. So thank you for your kind attention and time for some of that good old walking meditation out in the cool of the evening, chanting at 8.45. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.